Hello and welcome to Why It Matters. This is a podcast for leaders who know that relevance is a moving target. I'm Michael Goff and I'm the Strategy Director at Spark Studio. This is a collection of interviews with leaders who are passionate about something that's being overlooked. Sometimes that will be a brand, a product or a service. But it can also be an idea, something that has lost its value for many. And to re-express relevance, you need someone with vision. Today, I'm chatting to Jeremy Bassett. He's the CEO of the innovation business, CoCubed. They're on a mission to help shake up corporates by setting up partnership with tech startups. And in today's episode, I'm asking Jeremy why innovation matters. So Jeremy, welcome. Thank you for joining Why It Matters podcast. Good to have you with us. Yeah, great to be here, Michael. And our topic for discussion is innovation and why innovation matters. And I guess a good place to start is to just get a bit of background. How did you end up in the innovation space? That is a great question. You know what? I Let's go back to my childhood. Uh, I grew up on a dairy farm and we couldn't make enough money from selling the milk. So my uncle turned it into ice cream. And wow. I grew up in like this very entrepreneurial family. I then uh, I went to university and the company was giving out free magnums on campus. And I signed the next 14 years of my life up to work at Unilever, the world's largest ice cream company. Fantastic. And I always had this like challenge in my mind. How do you take the innovative, agile, entrepreneurial approach that I grew up with on my farm and bring that to life at a scale of Unilever? And so one thing led to another and I, I had various opportunities within Unilever to put that thinking to work and to challenge, you know, this approach of making corporates much more agile and more entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's definitely been a journey. And how long were you at Unilever for? Uh, so I was there 14 years. I worked across four countries, started in Australia and then New Zealand, Singapore and then the UK uh, where we've been here for the last 12 years. Fantastic. And just out of interest, what was the flavours that range that you produced on your family farm? You know what? There were 32 different flavours. So we had Seriously? everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, there were 18% butterfat, which if you know ice cream, is like, it's quite high, which means it tastes great, but perhaps not that great for your heart. And the most popular flavour? Uh, honeycomb. It was basically, uh, what do you call it? Here? Like a, a crunchy bar. Oh, um, right. Like, yeah, uh, smashed Fantastic. into a honey-flavoured ice cream. It was quite good. Yeah, recommend. <laughs> and then you stepped out of Unilever and you then set up CoQ. Tell us about that sort of journey and that decision to kind of go and set up your own thing. Yeah, so just over four years ago, I set up CoQ. And it came off the back of, you know, a lot of experience at Unilever and really seeing how much of an impact that collaborative innovation can have within a large corporate, like corporates working with startups, which is what we do today. But it also came out of a frustration that there's a lot of work involved in this and a lot of stuff that you could do with some help with. So we were talking to a lot of different corporates about what we did at Unilever and how I set up the Unilever foundry and all that sort of stuff. But what we found was that no one was really acting on that information. And so I went back to the various corporates we talked to and we talked to a lot. I said, you know, how come you haven't moved this forward? If we could do this as a service, would that be interesting? Uh, and they were all grappling with the same challenges of how do we connect with startups? How do we make that work? We don't have a network of companies. We don't know how to structure the partnership. So 
we said, well, look, let's set up an agency that I would have loved when I was at Unilever. And that's exactly what we do today. We've now worked with 40 of the FTSE 100. Uh, we help them with everything from creating a more entrepreneurial culture within the corporate through to helping to set up corporate venture funds right through to running corporate innovation labs. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Fantastic. So at the kind of core of the proposition then and sort of the heart of the website is this question of why it matters. So why does innovation matter? That's a great question. I would say, I mean, I would say that it matters more than ever. And the reason for that is that the world is changing more than ever and we need to keep up. I mean, to the, the title of the podcast, uh, Relevance is a Moving Target. Uh, the world is moving fast. And as as corporates, as startups, as individuals, we need to keep pace with that change. So innovation matters because innovation is the source that allows you to stay relevant to the world around you. And I, and I would say it matters more than ever because that change is only accelerating. Um, and especially the last 12 months. I mean, we've always been saying that the pace of change will never be as slow as it is today. Uh, and that's sort of been our mantra since when I was at Unilever. But um, how much more today? And have you seen appetite shrink or grow during the, the kind of previous 12 months? I mean, it's been a journey. Um, the first three months of COVID were quite difficult for us. Our clients are corporates. So we take pretty much all of our fees from corporates. If a corporate gives us a challenge, we don't charge a startup to introduce them. So most of our fees come from corporates. And it was difficult the first few months. I think a lot of corporates were asking some quite big existential questions. And that was not just at a corporate level, like John Lewis, will we be around in 12 months type thing, uh, but also at an individual level, will this innovation function be around in 12 months as well? And when that uncertainty goes through the system, it's tough for everyone. And so the first couple of months were difficult. Having said that, we still had enough work to carry us through that. And the team did an amazing job of stepping in and realizing the opportunities. We were very intentional that we wanted to power through this and come out the other end in a much better shape and, you know, I guess, innovate our way through the pandemic as well. Uh, and that strategy paid off. What we are finding though is the last six months, things have really bounced back. So corporates are saying, yeah, we do need to innovate. We need to drive, if you're in retail, we need to drive e-commerce. If you're in brand side, we need to perhaps change our business models. In the same way that COVID has taken many industries forward by five or 10 years, it's also taken the innovation agenda forward by five or 10 years as well. And um, so we're seeing a lot of demand for our work at the moment. How do you define it? What's the kind of essence of innovation? I do think like, to give you a, a frame, I like the horizon approach to innovation in terms of, you know, incremental right through to transformational. My only challenge with horizon based approach to innovation thinking is that it seems to come with a time horizon, which I don't think is accurate. Just in case the listeners don't know what that means, what is horizon, the horizon line kind of theory? Yeah, so uh, there's three horizons of innovation. Basically, it's stuff that is incremental and small, but can be done now is the way that uh, the academic theory goes. And then you've got a second horizon, which is more d disruptive. And then you've got a third horizon, which is transformational. And the theory is that with each stage of innovation, it, it takes longer to implement, it costs more, and it's higher risk. I disagree with that part, but I agree with the framework in terms of thinking about in innovation as, as small everyday changes that we make to our lives, to our businesses, to our organizations, right through to big strategic rethinks. 
um, which historically took a long time, were high risk and expensive. But today they don't have to be. And that's what we focus on in CoCube. What's led to you to the conviction about why, why it's important? What, what, what underpins it for you in terms of your drive? Well, you know what? Having worked in like a small farm uh, with an ice cream business on the side and having worked at Unilever, I have a huge appreciation for entrepreneurs and for corporates. I just think like both ends of that spectrum are driving phenomenal change and impact to the society. But I do think at a corporate level, corporates have a profound impact on our world. They're far more accountable than startups because you can hold Unilever to account, but you can't necessarily hold a small startup to account in the same way. You, they're, they're far more accountable. Their scale means that they have far more impact. Um, they employ you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. And then their consumers touch the lives of pretty much everyone on the planet. And so I'm really passionate about the way that corporates can have a profound impact on our world. Now, the only way they can have a profound impact on our world is if they operate out of a position of strength. Uh, as soon as you start missing results or coming under question or facing the threat of, an, of being acquired, it's really difficult in a corporate environment. And so if we can put corporates a bit more on the front foot through supporting them with their innovation agenda, um, then I think that also puts them on the front foot to tackle some of the world's biggest issues, uh, whether that be around sustainability or, or you know the myriad of other challenges that our world faces at this time as well so i'm interested in what the triggers are what's a trigger for a kind of corporate to to actually start thinking about innovation seriously what what are the things that are going on in their world that they decide actually we need to we need to start thinking about innovation more seriously yeah there's been um a lot of triggers recently I mean, every time a company goes bankrupt, I think it forces other companies to ask, well, what's going to send us bankrupt? Uh, which is a healthy place to be in, you know, slightly paranoid about are we going to be around in um, several years' time. So I think that's one trigger. The other trigger is individuals within the corporate as well. We look at corporates as a massive logo. In reality, there are tens of thousands of employees that individually and collectively make up that company. And so it does come down to individuals grasping hold of this. That is not always a CEO. In fact, it rarely is. It's normally one or two individuals that are passionate about this, passionate about keeping their company relevant and are willing to really drive that agenda. Um, and then perhaps they might get some permission to drive that agenda and hopefully some resource as well. But yeah, I do think it's a combination of like external and internal factors that drive that. Yeah. Have you seen a kind of appetite towards innovation change over the years? I mean, you've got a long kind of history of innovation that sort of spans sort of 15, 20 years. So when you were first involved in it back in the early days of Unilever, was, was, the, was the status quo different or has there always been a kind of spirit of innovation and it's just more sort of aligning with that spirit through the years? Or have you seen a momentum shift in attitudes towards innovation? I don't know if attitudes changed so much, but approach has changed profoundly. So I think there's always been an appetite for innovation. I think that is getting stronger as the world moves fast, changes faster. I think that appetite is getting stronger. Um, but the approach is definitely evolving. I think, you know, most corporates are on this journey of like, we can do it all ourselves. So we're spending billions on R&D. Uh, we've got some of the best people in the world. We're, we operate it at a scale that no one else can compete with. Uh, so we've got this sorted, I think is sort of, the first level, and then they start to look outside and they start to realize actually our market share or our industry is starting to be 
eaten away by a whole bunch of small companies that we can't even pronounce or remember or don't even know know about, but they're definitely eating collectively into the market share. Uh, so then there's a realization of, well, how do we keep up with that? Uh, and then there's this like a David and Goliath moment where it's like, it feels like we're at a war with each other. So corporates are sort of going to war with startups. And then I think there's a realization that actually there's a big opportunity here to partner. Startups are bringing innovation that our industry needs. And we still have, as a corporate, still have the scale that startups are desperate for. So how do we bring their innovation together with our scale to do something together? And that's the point where we come in to help identify what are those opportunities and to broker that relationship. I'm interested to uh, kind of hear a bit about the kind of perception of the the kind of startup or so, you know, dis- disruption happens because there's a kind of sense of frustration with the status quo in a market and kind of financial services and retail banking is a good example of that. So you see a lot of incumbent big banks being challenged by lots of disruption to then think about this idea that the corporate wants to then partner with that disruption for, for the challenger brand is kind of trying to make waves and trying to create their own market share. Is there resistance at that point of the partnership? How much of a hard sell is it to the to the to the startup to actually say there's a bigger opportunity here? It's not just about you creating waves, but partnering for a, for a bigger effect. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Um, and just like it's a journey for the corporates, it's also a journey for the startup. So we find there's a bit of a Goldilocks moment here. If you engage too early with a startup, they're incredibly ambitious and they're like, well, we're going to be the, the Google or the Uber or the Airbnb of XYZ. And then they realize that actually it's really hard work to be the Google or Uber or Airbnb of. Even for Airbnb, you know, their IPO was at threat you know, not much longer than 12, 18 months ago. Uber have had massive changes with regulatory issues and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, And these are the most successful companies in terms of most successful disruptors on the planet, right? So how much more so for the 99.9% of startups that don't fall into that bracket of disruption? And what I think they realize is that after a couple of years of going at becoming the Uber or Airbnb of, uh, they suddenly realize, this is hard work and cost of customer acquisition is huge. Uh, this is a VC funded growth model that's not really sustainable. Uh, and all of those initial challenges really come to the foreground and, and then force a rethink of well, how do we scale this in a more efficient, more effective way? And then that opens up an opportunity for dialogue with companies that bring that scale to them. Interesting. And who's doing it well? What are the, what are the examples that you've been involved in between that sort of partnership model? So I would say we call this uh, leveraged growth. So just like you've got organic growth, which is driven inside the business or acquired growth where you acquire a new company and um, scale it, we call this leveraged growth. So that's growth through partnerships. It's reasonably early days for leveraged growth. I mean, it doesn't have nearly the same level of infrastructure that you know, M&A banking might have around acquisitions. But We've seen some fantastic examples uh, over the years that we've been doing it. Let me give you two. So Wreck-It Ben Kaiser came to us and they had a supplements brand that they were launching, which improves cognition. So if you take that supplement, you'll notice your brain performance will improve uh, marginally, statistically significant, but marginally. Uh, If you take that supplement together with an app on your phone, like a, a brain gym, Uh, So think about games like Sudoku or other games that sort of stimulate the mind and help you to wake up your your brain. You see cognition improve significantly. 
So they had the challenge. We're a consumer goods company. How do we create a brain gym? They could build one, but that was going to take a few years to get to a point where it was proven, clinically proven and scalable. They could buy one that was going to cost about 20 or 30 million. And they didn't really want to drop that sort of cash on a proposition that they weren't sure would work. And we said to them, you know what? You could partner. There's lots of brain gyms. Most of them haven't scaled nearly to the extent that they'd like to, but they're fantastic as a tech platform. So let's engage with them, explore whether or not we can white label and then um, scale it together. So we had that conversation six months later, Rekit Ben Kaiser launched Nareva uh, Brain Health System powered by Cognifit, which is a US based brain gym. Uh, and 12 months after that, they're now the world's, uh, the US, uh, the biggest brain health brand in the US. So amazing success. Um, in a big market that's having a profound impact, not just on the brand and on the startup, but also for consumers as well. So it's a good example of how you can take an innovation and partner it. Another example is uh, Adidas came to us and they said the outdoor part of Adidas wanted to create base layers. So they're very good at jackets, they're great at um, shoes for trekking, for instance, but they don't have a base layer part of their portfolio. And we found this company that's doing a fantastic job of creating innovative base layers. And last month they launched the Adidas outdoor base layer in partnership with this other company. And it seems to be going really, really well. Uh, so two good examples of how you can take startup innovation, put it through the branding, the credibility and the scale of a large corporate and bring benefit to both sides of the, the equation. And does the startup stay in, in parallel with the business, with the corporate, or does it get sort of swallowed in, you know, in the kind of M&A model, you kind of assume that they would come along, they'd buy the company and, and it would just get absorbed into the into the, the business setup of the corporate. But this sounds like this is running in parallel. A bit yeah, more. exactly. And that's perhaps the strength of it. You know, the big downside to M&A is that you often destroy a big part of the incentive that drives a founder when a bit... But when you partner, you keep the founder very much in play. And so, for instance, Reckitt Ben Kaiser, they put this partnership in with Cognifit. Six months later, Cognifit came back to Reckitt and said, you know what, we're waking people up in the morning and stimulating their mind so that they're at peak performance. But how do we help them rejuvenate and rest overnight? Well, we're thinking of putting together a sleep app that could do that. Why don't you guys think about creating a sleep supplement and together we can collectively double our business and also help people really perform at their peak and rest at their peak. So it's a really nice example of how keeping that founder in play continues to bring that founder's energy into everything that the business does. I guess it would be interesting to hear when it fails, what are the factors that, that, that mean that innovation just hasn't worked? What makes, what makes for a good, successful innovation? Let me take that in two parts. When it fails, I think that's a, a good question. When an acquisition fails, you know, if Reckitt Ben Kaiser had have acquired a brain gym and it had have gone wrong, it would have cost them 20 or 30 million pounds. When a partnership goes wrong, it costs about, you know, two to 300K in terms, I mean, the cost of setting these things up is quite minimal, uh, relatively speaking. When I was at Unilever, we tried to build our own businesses in this unit where I was a director called the New Businesses Unit. And, and we launched 22 different ideas. We spent 40 million pounds of the company's money. And fast forward to today, none of those ideas uh, still exist. So, I mean, that is like a great example of failure. Partnership, a partnership approach to innovation, which is targeted at leveraged growth rather than organic or acquired growth, has a much smaller risk factor, much smaller downside, but also the risk of it going wrong is much smaller because you're working with an established company that has proven tech and proven capability. The only risk is what happens when I put my brand on this 
And generally that's a positive risk rather than a negative risk. So the risk is much lower. And I think good partnerships, I mean, it's like any partnership, Michael. It's sort of, you know, I mean, there has to be a click. There has to be a natural fit for, you know, problem solution fit. There has to be an appetite for both parties to really win from this. So it's not uh, one person wins, one loses. Both parties, there's enough room for everyone here. And it has to be very much an approach that uh, embraces that. And then I think, you know, a real willingness to be agile and learn and respond fast. You know, that entrepreneurial mindset is quite key here because, you know, when you launch something, especially if you're launching something across the whole of the US or across the whole of Adidas's range, you know, you have to be able to respond quite quickly. So building that agility into your operations is quite key as well. Yeah. And are there assumptions that are held in either the mind of the startup or the corporate that you need to kind of dispel? The presumptions that they hold they hold about how it's going to work that actually you need to say, no, no, hang on a minute. In our experience, that isn't going to happen. What would be, what would be those kind of examples? Yeah, there's a lot of presumptions that go all the way through this. So when we're making the initial in, uh, introduction, there's assumptions on the corporate side. No, we want to own and operate everything. You know, that's that's how most corporates have existed for the last you know, 10, 50, 100 years. So this idea of you don't have to own it to benefit is quite foreign to a lot of corporates. Although it's increasingly familiar to us as individuals, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to own your own car. You don't have to own your own holiday home. There's a whole bunch of things where it's about access, not ownership. From a startup's perspective, there's also this presumption that the corporate will take over and sort of kill um, the rest of our business or or might make it very difficult to have an exit, for instance. Um, and there's really clever ways to structure this so that it, it works well for everyone, whether that's in the interim or in the long term. But yeah, there's quite a few questions, I think, that naturally come with this, and, and probably rightly so. But um, we're starting to show that it does work. And when it works, it works exceptionally very well. Good. And for the sort of the corporate that perhaps has never really thought about this sort of par- partnership model, or perhaps even the idea of innovation is seems quite a kind of newfangled bit of jargon that doesn't really kind of uh, seem relevant to them. Is it about an individual within that business that catches the vision? I'm guessing that you don't probably have to do a hard sell to the corporates at the point where you start engaging them because they have already recognised that they need innovation or how much of an educational piece is, is required? Yeah, there's still a fair bit of education. And, and I would also say it's a bit of a journey. So normally we don't encourage people to jump in at that Horizon 3 transformational innovation. We normally encourage them to, I mean, if they're up for it, we'll definitely back them and make sure it works out. But normally it makes sense to go on a bit more of a journey. So start with things that are a bit more incremental. How can we help you save costs? How can we help you bring efficiency? How can we help you drive effectiveness in your operations? For instance, something quite tactical. And then as I get confident with working with external startups, smaller scale companies, uh, we start to stretch that and say, well, look, You've seen how they can bring cost savings to your operations and efficiencies to your organization. Uh, You're saving a lot of money. Why don't we have a look at how they can help you grow as well? Let's start to look at some disruptive ideas. And and generally, they're up for that. You know, you don't have to jump right in here. It starts with a pretty small piece of work, which is about landscaping to explore what exists, where is disruption coming from, what might be our, our death star, so to speak. And then it evolves from there in terms of having a conversation with those companies. Is there an opportunity here to partner? What might that partnership look like? And then the what? how could we test this? You know, it's a whole bunch of small steps. So it's not like you have to wake up one morning and have this massive change of vision, if you like, for the whole company. Yeah, the think big, start small, move fast is the mantra. And the consequence, if there isn't a spirit of innovation within a business, 
what, what, what's the fallout of it of, of innovation being ignored? I mean, there's a myriad of companies that have gone broke. You know, whether it's Blockbuster's moment, Blockbuster uh, or Kodak, um, for instance. You know, there's some great case studies on this. Uh, in fact, I've got a document that I'll share with you, which has 50 epic failures from corporates. Uh, so there's some great lessons in there on what happens when corporates don't engage. And, you know, it, it is catastrophic. Um, it's catastrophic, not just to the corporate, but also all the individuals, but also the consumers that they serve as well. And I think it's a real missed opportunity for everyone. Who's doing it well at the moment? In, out, you know, separate to CodeCubed, who's out there who's actually, that you look at and think, actually, they've got it, they've got it right. They're doing something really exciting. Uh, yeah, there's lots of great examples of innovation done well. I think it's quite exciting to look at some of the banks. The big banks, I would say, are moving slow, but open banking is really driving them in this direction of like, how do we collaborate more, which I think is quite exciting. And there's a lot to learn from that from, for other industries as well. The other space that seems to be doing this quite well, I, I do think the CPG world is starting to jump onto this quite quickly. CPG meaning? Oh, sorry, consumer goods. So uh, not to necessarily name specific companies, but you know the companies that you might see in a supermarket, for instance, are starting to cotton on to this idea of how do we go from products into services. And there's some of our clients that are doing some really exciting work in that space. It's a little bit too early to talk about specifically. But... And in that retail space, given given all the challenges that we've endured in the last 12 months and thinking about the changing landscape of the high street, what would be your kind of message to those sort of established businesses, I guess the likes of John Lewis with their mass, their announcement of their massive loss recently and the impact that's going to have on store presence? What would you be saying to the to the retail world in, in the light of, of the economic downturn? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the big problem for some of those big retailers at the moment is they're very much operating off the back foot. And that's a tough place to be, you know, to move forward from. However, they're still very well regarded, highly trusted brands that consumers love. And there's big opportunities for them to look at how they can take that brand into new spaces. They need to move fast but there's still that window of opportunity. Uh, and we do a lot of work in retail at the moment. Uh, it's a really exciting space. In fact, I think in the next five years for retail is gonna be super interesting. We're gonna see some big changes accentuated by COVID, but they probably, they, I mean, they would have happened anyway. But yeah, it's definitely an exciting space to be in. I mean, without obviously going into details, what, what's the kind of trend as you see it? What are the, what are the things that are going to trickle down? I mean, the obvious one is the for John Lewis that they've been able to kind of sustain their business model because of their online presence and their and their website uh, and their trade there. What else is happening that you're seeing that actually that the, the what are the trends that you're spotting? Yeah, so I, I mean, the trends that we see in retail are the trends that you see pretty much everywhere. So the world's moving hybrid. It's not work from home or work from the office, it's a combination. It's not shop from store or shop online, it's a combination. So retail is moving hybrid. Omnichannel has been around for a long time, but that's uh, you know definitely found its space now. Uh, the second thing is we're seeing retailers start to think about, well, if we've got these customers and it's cost us a lot to acquire these customers, how do we then increase basket size? Not just necessarily of goods, which is definitely happening. And there's a lot of smart stuff going on around e-commerce, but also how do we provide stuff that is more enhances the utility of, of goods and services? So you start to see some of the retailers going much more into the service space, for example, and, and offering a more holistic solution. We're also seeing um, personalization as a big trend that's coming out in that space as well. So how do we create an experience that's bespoke to Michael? And how do we start to build a suite of products and services 
around Michael's need states. So how do we make it easier for him to to navigate our suite of products and to uh, make a transaction? Yeah, then we just had a pitch session yesterday, actually. There's some interesting companies that go in store, for instance, which is a startup where you click a button from your website and you can talk to someone on the shop floor. They're doing this with curries, for instance, if you want to buy a TV. Course you can look at it online but if you want to talk to someone in real life or, or see what it looks like in person you can click on a button and it takes you straight into a call with someone in a physical store so there's some interesting technologies like that that are popping up um, that i think will change the way we shop as well it's interesting they're kind of moving away from the sort of faceless call center and some backwater in the world yeah yeah into something that's much more familiar and what's your take on the sort of innovation of amazon starting to open stores and moving from online into a physical space yeah it's interesting isn't it I mean, they really are going head to head with everyone. I think for the last decade, everyone's viewed Amazon as their biggest competitor now. Um, they're starting to see that play out. It'd be interesting to see how that transition moves uh, is for Amazon. But it's a great example of this hybrid approach, omni-channel approach of like, it's not about online or in store, it's about both. And they're definitely embracing that. Just as a kind of separate point, can you think of any other sort of businesses or services or ideas that you think the value of which is being overlooked? You know what? I think most corporates undervalue their, their core assets. They take them for granted. It's really easy to do that. You quickly take for granted the brands that you might have or the people and the caliber of people that you've got in your teams or your distribution and go-to-market capabilities or your manufacturing capabilities. All of those things, the scale at which many corporates operate is probably the envy of their competitors and definitely every startup and innovator in that industry. And so the big question to corporates is like, First of all, don't take for granted the capabilities you have. Secondly, think creatively about how could you leverage those assets to do something much bigger? How could you monetize your distribution capabilities in new ways? How could you stretch your brands into new spaces to deliver on more needs and, and better serve customers? How can you take your manufacturing capabilities and push more things through that? Those are really interesting questions to be grappling with, I think. And yeah, I, I think if you start to think about those assets and starting to think about how can you provide them as a service to others, then that is an interesting opportunity for brands to explore new growth opportunities. And then we've got this final question. So we have this newsletter that goes out every other month. And we have a section in that which is uh, what's on uh, and things that are worth checking out. Obviously, in the in lockdown, we've kind of missed the opportunity to get involved in sort of live cultural experiences. What what's the stuff that you've missed most from a kind of cultural cultural experience during lockdown? There's been a lot. I mean, working from home is a bit claustrophobic and a, pretty uninspiring. I guess that's the first challenge. I do. I am looking forward to getting back to the office at least um, on a part time basis. Uh, the second thing, though, is like catching up with other people in the industry. And I think some of the big events have been a real point of stimulus and thought, not just for me, but I know for other industries as well. So I miss those. You know, I can see some of them starting to open back up. I was actually in a studio yesterday hosting a pitch session for Madfest, which um, have done a great job of taking these things virtually. But of course, it's still virtual. So, yeah, I miss the, some of the industry events. And then the other thing I just miss is just being able to catch up with mates and workmates in the pub and have a good conversation and any any books films podcasts that you particularly enjoyed during this time you know what there's a great book called humanocracy which uh, is really interesting 
And I, I think, you know, if you're looking at asking, if you're asking some existential questions about your company, how you organize it, how you get the most out of your teams, that's quite interesting. So that's Humanocracy by Gary Hamill and Michelle Zanini. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for being on Why It Matters, Jeremy. It's been fantastic to have you. Uh, real priv- privilege, Michael. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing the other podcasts as well. Thanks for your time. All the best. You've been listening to Why It Matters. Why It Matters has been put together by Spark Studio, the brand and design agency based in London. To find out more about us, visit our website at sparks-studio.com. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at hashtag whyitmatterspod or get in touch with me at whyitmatters at sparks-studio.com. Thanks for listening.